Tonight we're in Isaiah. 43rd chapter, beginning of verse 22. I'll read those verses in a moment. If you had any interest in the NBA, you would never, you would not soon forget October the 6th, 1993, when the greatest basketball player who has ever lived retired. At the age of 30, Michael Jordan had seven consecutive scoring titles in the NBA. He had led the, the Chicago Bulls to three world championships consecutively. They three-peated. And he achieved most valuable player numerous times. The last year he played basketball, he netted $40 million. And he retired. It wasn't because of an injury or an indictment or a salary dispute. When he announced his retirement, he was at the prime of his career. And he said, no longer is basketball a challenge. No longer is it any fun. In essence, I am tired of it. There's not anybody that I know who would claim to be a believer who would ever say, ever admit publicly, I've gotten tired of God. He's boring. He's a drag. And I'm tired of Him. But if you'll look in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 22, it's what he said of his people. You have grown weary of me. You've gotten tired of me. What is your attitude toward God? I guess a better question is, what should be your attitude toward God? One of submission, so that one humbly submits himself to the will of God. One who's submissive to the Word of God. Obedient submission. Trusting so that a person absolutely believes and is totally confident that God will lead him in the direction he needs to take and do everything he promised because there can be no intimacy without absolute trust. Gratitude. There can be no bitterness when a person has a grateful heart and it begins with gratitude toward God, His thanksgiving in all things. What is your attitude toward God? What is should be? But I have a feeling, maybe not you, Maybe I'm preaching to the wrong crowd, except some maybe who are watching on television. Maybe you're not willing to admit it. Maybe you have grown tired of God. Lost your zeal? The fire's gone or at least subsided? Your passion for Him, your, hunger, your heart for Him, your desire to please Him is not what it used to be. And could He say of you and me, you have grown weary of me. Ready to quit. 
Well, how do you know when you get tired of God? Well, I'm glad you asked because it tells us in this text how to know when you're tired of God and ready to quit. It's number one, when, when you cease to call on Him. Verse 22, yet you have not called on me, O Jacob. It's when prayer becomes a forced issue and empty. It's when prayer, if there is prayer at all, becomes a rigid discipline that you almost hate and dread. It's when there's nothing going on between you and God in this dialogue called prayer. How do you know when two people have a problem in their relationship? It's when they, start, when they stop talking to one another. Go into a restaurant. You can pick out two people who are very much in love. They're sitting across the table. Sometimes they sit side by side. But, and they're in this uh, conversation that's wrapped. I mean... Uh, they're just, you know, hanging on every, each word, you know, that each says. Across the room, on an, in another booth, is a man and his wife. They come in, sit down, order their dinner, eat their dinner, never say a word. And just sitting there. And get up, sound like anybody you know? Hey, get up and leave. Not one word of dialogue between them. Pretty good indication that something is happening there that's not the best. How's your prayer life? I can tell you that the thermometer of your spiritual life is not will you come to church on Sunday night of the Super Bowl. It's not how many people you try to win to Christ, how often you visit, how, much, how many medals are you wearing on your lapel, how many consecutive years you've not missed a Sunday in Sunday school. The measure of your spiritual life is your quiet time. It's what go, what's going on in this dialogue called prayer. You've gotten tired of God if prayer is not what it has been meant to be, is, should be, was, or whatever. Number two, it's when you begin to neglect public worship Verse 23, you've brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I find this interesting because I have found in other places of the prophets where God complains that that's all they did, is that they came to church just to come to church. And they brought sacrifices. And that was all that was going on between them and God, was just what they brought to the church house when they came for public worship. That was a complaint of God, is a complaint of God, and has been all the way through the Old Testament. But there's a unique complaint here, and that's this, that you stopped coming to the house of God for worship. I think more is involved here than just the activity of public worship, I think what he's talking about here primarily is, is that there is in the worship itself something missing. It might be that you're coming to, to bring sacrifices, but not worship. 
Um, we're made to worship. If you don't worship God, you'll substitute something in His place. It might be something you've created with your hands, some sports hero. You might get caught up in the New Age movement. It might be yourself, but we're made for worship, and so we worship something, somebody. Somebody said a definition of worship is to assign or ascribe worth and value, to, to assign praise and honor. Oh, the sign of one's the dynamic of one's relationship with God often can be measured by his excitement to be in his place in worship. There's something really wonderful and exciting about people who come to God's house to encounter him and together in the corporate worship of the saints, something dynamic happens. People, it's an indication of getting tired of God when that's no longer important. Number three, when we stop giving monetarily, verse 24, you have brought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. What he's saying is this, you've stopped giving me what I deserve that's purchased with monetary means when you stop giving monetarily. How important is money? Somebody said, I don't know if I can agree with it entirely, but he said that man's attitude toward money is the most decisive test of his character. Well, Jesus knew how important money was. He knew that we either learn how to manage it or it will destroy us. So it's no accident that 11 of the 38 parables he told were parables about possessions. And it's no accident that one out of 10 verses in the Gospels have to do with money. 500 verses on prayer in the Gospels, 2,000 on money and possessions. How important is it to you? Well, I can tell you how important it is to some. It's the only time I ever get criticized when I preach a sermon. It's when I preach a sermon on money. And any of us will understand or know that oftentimes that money is one of the major problems that exists when there are problems in marriage. It's a matter of money. A man sat with his son eating a burger. His son had some fries. The father reached over to get a fry out of his son's little package of fries to eat it. And his son said, those are my fries. Get your own. <laughs> and he said, that, I know that sounds like somebody, you know. And, and he said, I fought as I put the fry back, you know, French fry. How it must seem to the heavenly father. Three things. The little boy didn't understand where those fries came from. His father had given them to him. Second, the little boy didn't understand that the father didn't need the fries. I mean, he could buy his own, buy half of the McDonald's fries if he wanted them. He didn't need his fries. And the little boy didn't understand 
that those fries were his only as long as his father chose. What his father wanted was that his boy share with him and be generous in sharing. Giving is more a ad- matter of an attitude than it is a posse- matter of, of having possessions. It's, giving is from the heart. Now, how do we know when we get tired of God? It's when giving no longer is fun. And we want to keep really what belongs to Him. Number four, we know we have tired of God when it doesn't matter as much to us that we have uncontested sin in our life. He says in verse 24, you have wearied me with your iniquities. I'm tired of God, He's tired of my sin. Now nobody's perfect. There's not a single person who has, can, can boast of a sinless life. But I have a feeling that our attitude towards sin is different. I have a feeling that some folks have, a, have this kind of attitude. Well, it really doesn't. You know, this little thing, that little thing doesn't really matter. And on the other hand, there are those who, who are grieved any time they sense that there is anything in their heart that God cannot, you know, was not pleased with. We know when we, that we're tired of God when it doesn't matter to us as much that we have sin in our life. For when there's something wonderful going on in our relationship with God, we want nothing, nothing, not a zero. We want nothing in our life that would bring Him grief or pain. Now the question is, how do you recover that zeal? Well, there's several answers. Number one, begin to remember. Verse 26, put me in remembrance. Begin to remember. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about, you know, uh, I think maybe he's talking about, why don't you make a little trip back into yesterday and remember how good God has been to you. Take a little trip down memory lane and reflect on the goodness of God in your life, how good He has been, what He's brought into your life and how He's blessed you. Take a little trip down memory lane and remember how it used to be, you know, when you and God were in love, you know, when there was this wonderful stuff going on between you and God. Take a little trip down memory lane and reflect on what it used to be like when there was nothing between your soul and the Savior. Or maybe he's saying you need to take a little trip back in memory to where you came from. Do you want to go back to how you were before the Lord came into your life? You remember those, how miserable that was? You remember how empty you were? You want to go back to those habits and addictions? You want to go back to when you um, lived so alone? You really want that? 
if you want to get back with God in this passion of love between two, you just need to remember what you were before He found you. And try to recall how miserable that was. You know. Second, how to get it back? Talk it out honestly. He says in um, uh, verse 26, Put me in remembrance, the last part of that, let us argue our case together. God's not frightened by your, um, by your uh, questions, by your uh, rebellion. I mean, he, he's going to survive. And I have a, a real feeling that, that, you know, he's not threatened or harassed when you have something against him, you can tell him about it. And you can come, and it's a courtroom term here. It's like two people arguing a case. It's like O.J., you know, and that, sorry to bring that up, one day without O.J. is, is a blessing. Two, two lawyers up here battling it out, uh, presenting their case. I mean, he's not, he's not afraid that you're going to tell him something that's going to surprise him or threaten him, or expose him. He's saying this, if you've got some problem with me, let's talk it out. We can trust one another. We're friends. And you can go before him tonight honestly to tell him, Lord, something's going on in my life I don't understand. I'm experiencing some coldness and despair that I don't like. And I can't pray, and I don't see any answers, and I want to, I want to know some answers. I mean, we need to talk this out. And you talk it out in prayer until you get your answer. That's how you get back with God. Number three, assume responsibility for your own sin. Verse 27, he says, your first forefather sinned. He's talking about Adam. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use a little ministerial license here. I'm going to kind of, I think this might fit. If it doesn't fit here, it, it does other places. <laughs> you can look them up. But the implication here is, is that um, everybody's blaming the one before. That's what Adam did when he sinned. You, you, you think Adam came out of, a, out, of the, out of the bushes and said, okay, I confess I did something terrible wrong. No, you don't need to say that at all. He said, My, your wife, this wife you gave me, this person, she, look, she says, the serpent beguiled me and I did. And there's just this passing the buck along the way. Now, let me tell you how to return to right relationship with God. Face up to your sin to your responsibility. There's nobody to blame for the problem you have in your relationship with God except you. Man, it's easy to blame the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, mother and dad. These goofy people you see on a Saturday, on these afternoon talk shows. Oh, I remember now when I was three years old, my daddy wouldn't give me a sucker. That's, that's why I went out and murdered three people. It's his fault. I mean, goofy stuff. And, you know, it's, it, it, what, what he's saying is this. He's saying you've got a problem with God. That's your problem in between, it's between you and God. It's not somebody else's fault. 
And as soon as you begin to assume responsibility for your own sin, the sooner you'll get back with God. There's one last thing, and that is to focus on Him. That's what this is about. Your forefathers sin, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me, so I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. It's what I'm going to do until you focus on me. And so we have that illustration of Simon Peter sinking. Why? Because he took his eyes off the Lord. Um, There is something beautiful and glorious about God. And And a clear indication of what goes on when somebody gets tired of God and the relationship begins to to wither and wane. It's a sure indication that we've stopped looking at Him. Two people in love can't keep their eyes off each other. You notice Margaret is constantly looking at me. Two people in love can't keep their eyes off one another. Their focus is on their loved one, their lover. Where are your eyes? And when a person turns to focus on him, he sees the beauty of him. He sees the glory of him. He sees the awe and wonder of him. How can you ever not be madly in love with the Lord if you keep your eye on Him? Let's pray together. God, I pray that if we have wearied of You, we'll find out why. And we'll do something about it. For I pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. Might be somebody here who's never come to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, her personal Savior. He's the wonder of all, the beauty of all beauties, the um, lily of the valley, Rose of Sharon. He's, he's the bright and morning star. He's the glorious of all. Why not give your life to Him? He'll never let you down, never fail you. Maybe you need to rededicate yourself to Him or to join our church to, 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 to serve Him. So we'll, we'll sing one stanza or two. We've got plenty of time for you to come. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.